0: Well, good morning. With all those kids here with us, I'm reminded that one of the toughest things I feel a parent has to do with children these days is somehow being the police of that which can pop up on the many screens that our children have in front of them nowadays. Televisions, computers, and smartphones. I can still remember my very young mother and father occasionally taking me out to a movie when I was a little boy and suddenly having to put their hands over my eyes if something got a little too risque or inappropriate. They never covered my ears and the words never changed in movies. They were still just as bad. But today I'm afraid to say we just don't have enough hands to guard our children from all that they can see and hear. Because what might have unexpectedly come across on a movie or television screen back in the 1980s when I was young is a far cry from what a child might see with no warning whatsoever on the Internet today. One wrong word typed into a search engine without parental controls in place can bring up all manner of inappropriate material. Our seven-year-old daughter Efa already has access and knows how to work better than me all the different screens that are laying around in our house these days. So her mother and I must constantly be on the lookout when she tells us she wants to get on the internet and look for pictures of alligators or fairies or Disney characters. We have to try and make sure that what she finds is the right thing that she was looking for and not the wrong thing. Now, even though I am old enough to have lived in a time in history when there was no internet, no constant easily accessible accessibility to it, I do remember one experience with a screen that forever scarred my childhood and oddly enough, in some way I think, also helped to shape who I would become in the future. When I was 10 or 11 years old, just old enough to be trying to convince anyone who would listen that I could do anything that a teenager could do, My dear Aunt Karen, who had one of the first VCR players I can remember, was babysitting me one night and decided to put on a movie to watch before the holiday of Halloween arrived. I'm not really sure if she'd ever seen this particular film before herself, but she loved horror films, and I'm pretty sure that I probably told her I liked horror movies too. Though in my mind, at that age, a horror film was nothing more than Ghostbusters or Scooby-Doo. The movie that she put into the VCR that night was not one of those movies. The movie was William Friedman's 1973 film adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist. See? Exactly, exactly. Now there are certainly, I know, I can already tell that all of you know that there are certainly many very inappropriate parts of that film no one under the age of 18 should ever see. But I can tell you I wasn't exactly old enough to really notice those or even understand them. It was more the shocking scenes of demonic possession displayed in that film that absolutely terrified me. For the connection those images made in my mind... We're not to something like Count Dracula or Frankenstein's monster or to a little green ghost eating hot dogs and haunting the New York Public Library before the Ghostbusters arrived and caught them in a ghost trap. This film was about something that I'd actually heard about many times before growing up in rural Baptist and Pentecostal churches in Kentucky. This film was about the devil, Satan, and demons. And the act of exorcism used to cast out an invading demon from inside a human body. I've heard, I'd heard about all of that many times before, believe it or not, in Sunday school classes growing up. Now, I wasn't a Roman Catholic, so I didn't quite understand what made the priest in those funny robes and black shirts and purple stoles so important in the movie. But I certainly knew about their fight against the devil. And I knew that it was real. And it was for the first time, seeing it played out in that graphic terrifying way by Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn and the creepy voice of classic movie actress Mercedes McCambridge that took me over the edge. That absolutely horrified me in ways that lasted for many, many years afterwards. My mother and my grandmother were livid when they found out that my aunt had let me watch The Exorcist. And thanks to all the nights that happened afterwards when I couldn't sleep without lights being left on, my aunt was banned from ever babysitting me again. Now, when I got older, I found myself drawn to want to face my fears with that scary movie and the scars it left on me. The only way that any of us can ever really do to overcome something that scares us. I had to watch that movie again and I watched it and I watched it again and again after that. I bought a copy of William Peter Blatty's 1971 book and I read it and then I read the book again. And after I was in college studying for my Bachelor's degree in philosophy and religion. I have to be honest with you, that battle against the devil by Father Karras and Father Marin in the original book, portrayed so incredibly by actors Jason Miller and Max von Sieden, helped to cause a Baptist boy who studied and memorized Baptist verses in Sunday school to suddenly be drawn to the more Catholic approach of our Christian faith with all its ancient prayers and liturgies that when recited by an ordained priest could do serious damage to a very real battle with the devil. Luckily for my wife Audrey, for my daughters, and for all of you, I didn't quite get drawn all the way over that Roman Catholic line. Though I did find, as you can see, a way to wear my own fancy robes and black shirts and purple stoles. And every year when I lead again our Anglican tradition's oldest Catholic litany from the prayer book translated into English, and recite for this first Sunday of Lent the words that say, beseeching our Lord to strengthen us as people to stand in faith, to finally beat down Satan under our feet. You better believe I remember again that first visceral fear of the devil that was delivered to me in the technicolor green of the exorcist. Now, today we Episcopalians tend to think, be the kind of Christians who place the devil only in movies like The Exorcist or children's cartoons like Scooby-Doo. But I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, the devil we either do or do not believe in is everywhere in the Bible. Every year on the same Sunday we get to pray the Great Litany. We also spend a little time with Satan in that story of Jesus's temptation by the devil in one of the first three Gospels. In each of those stories, just after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit, we are told, leads Jesus out into the desert for 40 days. And it's there where he will be tempted by Satan. The version of Satan in the Gospels is a bit less frightening than the devil in the horror movie genre, thanks be to God, and more like the tempter version of Satan that we first encounter in the Hebrew Bible in the story of Job. God uses the accuser in Job, called in Hebrew, to go inflict harm on Job in order to prove Job's faith. And in the case of the story this morning from the Gospel of Luke, The devil is all about the same goal with Jesus, to test Jesus in his human form, just as the devil tempts all of us, to see with Jesus if the balance can be in place between this God who is made fully man and this man who is fully capable of being God. The devil this morning doesn't use scare tactics to frighten Jesus into submission and failure. Instead, The devil goes straight for the way that has been the best way of tempting us human beings from the very beginning of creation. He starts on the lowest, easiest level, tempting Jesus, who is obviously hungry and deprived of food in the desert, to turn the very stones around him into bread to eat, to give in to his very human sensual desire to satiate the physical things we need and we want in our lives. Stones turned into bread in this case, though it could equally be stones that could be turned into money or into material things or to sexual love or anything physical. But Jesus answers the Satan with one short sentence and sends him away. Jesus said, one does not live by bread alone. Next, the devil takes Jesus from the desert floor to the next level, looking over the whole of the earth bow down and worship me, the Satan says to Jesus, and I will give all of this to you as if the devil has the power to give us anything. And Jesus again turns that temptation around on the devil, saying to the devil, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Because for Jesus, he already knows that the true power is located not in power itself, but in good and in the love of God alone. Finally, the devil moves Jesus to the very highest point of his Jewish faith, the very pinnacle of the great temple in Jerusalem. And the devil tempts Jesus by testing what he sees as glory, asking Jesus to throw himself down off this pinnacle so everyone can see how great Jesus is when the angels appear to catch him so that no stone will strike his feet. But Jesus turns this temptation down as well, saying to the devil that there is only one who is truly great. That is God, and we do not put God to the test. And with that, the gospel says the devil is finished with every test and he departs until another opportune time. This version of the Satan, the accuser, the Lord of lies and the progenitor of evil and death is certainly in no way as frightening as that demon Pazuzu in the book or the movie I first watched that warped me as a 10 year old boy. And this is perhaps the best way for us as Christians today to remove the physical ideas and images of how terrifying the devil might be if we could see him with our own eyes, reminding us instead of how far more frightening the ways the devil can whisper in our ears tempting us and testing us, more like tiny flies or gnats swarming around us when we find ourselves standing on the edge of a cliff or after we've climbed a very tall ladder. The danger flares when we suddenly find ourselves thrown off balance by temptation, when we're caused to forget where we are in that moment and we are made to make rash or poor decisions, leading us in a second toward what could be a terrible, deadly fall. This is the most terrifying revelation of the real devil, something ever and always moving around us, tempting us to sin and ultimately leading to the destruction and death that sin alone brings about. And if you don't believe me, and that's okay if you don't, I challenge you to think just a moment about what's going on in the world around us right now. Brothers and sisters, we are suddenly closer than we have been in generations to what could be another world war. All caused by a leader in power tempted to have just a little more of what he wants, just a little more power, just a little more land and property for nation, just a little more glory in his aging last days before he has to succumb to death. Where did this temptation come from? He's well-educated, we all know that. There's no real medical diagnosis that we've been made aware of yet, of mental disorder. And yet, like so many world leaders before, his ego has been inflated by greed and lust and want, so much so that now an entire nation is moaning in violence and death and war. And at the same time, our whole world is feeling the earthquake, of fear and worry again. Does evil really not exist? Is there really no tempter? In William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, near the very end in what becomes one of my favorite scenes in the film, Father Karras sits on the stairs with the older, failing Father Marin. Father Karras asks what would be the purpose of possession? What, What's the point? To which Father Maron says, the demon's target is not the possessed, it is us, the observers, every person in this house. And I think the point is to make us despair, to reject our own humanity. There it lies, Damien, possession. Not in wars, as some tend to believe, not so much, and very rarely in extraordinary interventions, such as here, this girl, this poor child. No, I tend to see possession often most in the little things, Damien, in the senseless pity spites and misunderstandings, the cruel and cutting word that leaps unbidden to the tongue between friends, between lovers, between husbands and wives. Enough of these, and we have no need of Satan to manage our wars. These we manage ourselves for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, perhaps today we do not need horror movies of demon possession to frighten us into the actions of the presence of evil and the devil. Maybe we just need to pay more attention to what is going on out there and open our minds to recognize the signs of temptation and evil in our own lives. The good news is always the hope and promise we as believers find in the words that St. Paul sets before us this morning in his letter to the Romans. If we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That it pleased thee to strengthen such as do stand, to comfort and help the weak-hearted, to raise up those who fall, and finally to beat down Satan under our feet. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Amen.